Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursdays. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Vicki Bessaliga, and I'll be your host for today's episode. With me are Andrew Smith, Clinical Pharmacy Specialist at Scripps Mercy San Diego, and Caitlin Gervais, Inpatient Pharmacist at Landstolf Regional Medical Center in Landstuhl, Germany. Thanks so much for joining us today, guys. So today we're going to be talking about the role of the emergency medicine pharmacist's role in disaster preparedness. At an institutional level, how can emergency medicine pharmacists get involved with emergency preparedness initiatives? Awesome question, Vicki. I'll start. So I think at an institutional level, if pharmacists are interested in getting involved with disaster preparedness, there's uh, obviously plenty of opportunities not only at department level, but at institutional, and then even at a system level, depending on the size and the resources uh, that the hospital has to afford you. Obviously, medications are kind of at the heart of what we do. And even though as an EM pharmacist, a lot of times we're thrown into different roles. At a core, I think we need to make sure that we have the medications ready to be prepared in response to a disaster. And so the Annals of Emergency Medicine Consensus Guidelines came out a couple of years ago from the New York City Poison Control Center. I kind of put together a formulary of medications that we would potentially need to respond to a disaster, including a lot of antidotes that would be more difficult to procure in a a disaster moment. And so these guidelines, again, put together kind of a formulary and different hospitals, depending on the resources that they have available, have put together different types of plans, whether you need you know, uh, 24 versus a 48 versus a 72 hour supply for a 70 versus 100 kilo patient, depending on where you are at and what your patient population is like. Putting those plans together and making sure you have access to those medications, maybe um, not necessarily at your institutional level, because sometimes a lot of these medications can be expensive because they're antidotes, but maybe at a system level. So you kind of stockpile them if you're a larger system in one place and they can be deployed. Or even in, um, I know in previous places I've worked, they kind of had like a central stockpile for the entire city, which many health systems kind of shared that stockpile, maintain that stockpile. So when those expired, it wasn't such a cost to um, the entire system. Caitlin, do you have anything else to add? Yeah, I completely agree with that. Obviously, being the medication experts, this is a great spot for us and especially emergency medicine pharmacists. I think to go along with that is just being administratively involved. As ER pharmacists, we have a great ability to handle and prioritize. So we know that role and handle multiple different departments as being the liaison from the pharmacy, whether it's the ER, EMS, another first responders, but then also moving into the house. So emergency medicine pharmacists can be a great resource for being at meetings. So even if it's your hospital or your departmental emergency preparedness committee, being there as a member and being that voice for the pharmacy department and between all those departments is key. And we play a key role in being that liaison. Kaylin, I like that you said that the emergency pharmacist is the person that's actually in the room. I'm curious to hear what kind of involvement you guys have at your institutions with regards to active participation in emergency preparedness events and drills. 
Sure, yeah, definitely. Um, again, this kind of just piggybacks off what Caitlin just mentioned is making sure that you can involve in whatever disaster preparedness or emergency level or at a system level. Generally, CMS requirements are that the hospital has at least one drill annually and that it's got to be either a disaster or mass casualty incident drill. And so making sure you're present and making sure that you're creating a pharmacy department presence inside these emergency preparedness committees is always going to be key because there's generally not a single person that's focused on, you know, what's happening to the medications as we're evacuating your North ICU tower down 10 stories. What are we going to do with those continuous infusions as those patients are moving? How are those pumps going to maintain battery operations? What's going to happen with other inpatient oral medications that need to be administered if we're not able to get back onto the unit in a certain amount of time? And so making sure that you have somebody that's thinking about what happens with medications along every step of this process is very important. You know, furthermore, beyond that, like not only on the inpatient, let's say disaster side, like on the outpatient disaster side, what happens if you have 250, 500 members of your community who are exposed to a bioterrorism agent and you need to be able to dispense massive quantities of doxycycline or fluoroquinolones to these patients? Do you have the uh, the ability to pack up these medications and give these patients to go packs, whether it's just for your employees that were potentially exposed, your employees' family members who are exposed, that your employees can continue to come to work and care for patients that may need help, or are you going to be able to dispense those to the community? So making sure that you're thinking about you know medication delivery to patients, you know step by step at the end of the day through these uh, disaster preparedness plans is important. And then making sure you have a seat at this table for those emergency preparedness committees will be key to that. And furthermore, you'll be able to obviously make sure you educate, you know, the entire hospital, what pharmacy's role is going to be specifically in these disaster events and having a disaster preparedness plan kind of delineated because trust me, nursing has one, medicine has a disaster preparedness event per unit. Your pharmacy department also needs to have a disaster planning event uh, for the pharmacy department. What are you going to do if you're short-staffed? How are you going to manage delivery of medications, especially if there's additional contact precautions needed for your department? Something that a lot of us have had to think about since COVID has hit us um, hard that we never had to think about that maybe we're slightly more prepared for, but if it was a more mass scale, like let's say 500 to 1,000 people event, you know, in a single city, I think we would still, you know, be, it would be very difficult to be able to plan that ahead. Yeah, for sure. I always think of my old institution, they had like the NICU jacket with all the pockets so that they could, if they need to do a mass evacuation, they could just stick the babies into the pockets <laughs> so they could get them out quickly. Yeah, um, last week we just had to like roll sleds down the stairs just in case the elevators went out. We just did our drill. And so trying to roll these ICU patients down with these, sl- these sleds down the stairs you know, a nightmare, you know, with continuous infusion of meds running. It's uh, definitely an experience and make sure you get your hands dirty when you're doing it. (laughs) So, um, you know, you mentioned that the nursing and physicians definitely have plans. Uh, What policies or procedures should you have and what should they cover? Thanks, Vicki. Yeah, that's, it kind of leads into all those things so you can drill and use your drills then to update your policies and procedures. Probably two of the biggest ones, both at an institutional level and at a pharmacy level, and they're required by Joint Commission, is the Hazard Vulnerability Analysis, or HVA. And this is actually how you're going to assess where your risks are. So the HVA actually covers looking at what risks you have, what is the potential that they'll happen, and what is the potential impact of each of those events. So you kind of grade out all of the things. So even if you're, for me, we I used to be in an area with hurricanes. 
but we didn't think about tornadoes. So making sure that you hit all those things, even if it's not as likely to happen, but if you haven't prepared, that's when you're in trouble. The other one is then your emergency operation plan, which is kind of what Andrew's been talking about. Your system will have one, your county will have one. Everyone needs one of those to have a continuity plan of what is the response and how are we going to get through that. And both of these need to be done annually according to Joint Commission, going through the HVA and then updating your EOP. And so with your EOP, not only will you update it based on the selected things you plan for that year based on your hazards, but then you'll use your drills that Andrew was just talking about to then say, okay, here's where we had issues or maybe didn't get what we wanted to accomplish. So let's update this with what we learned and what we think we can do better and continue to grow each time. And going through joint commission reviews, you're never going to be perfect, but the goal is to continually improve and then go from there. And then you'll have your institutional one, but you should also have a pharmacy one, whether you do an HVA separate or not, you should have a departmental policy for the pharmacy And within that, that should coordinate with the institution, but then have pharmacy more specific details that might not, such as dealing with the medications where they're stored. Keep in mind, one of the keys for joint commission and should be based on FEMA is that you should have an all hazards plan. So your plan shouldn't be just specific for a certain event. It should cover all. However, if you have something that's very common in your area, you can add appendices for those specific that go under the plan, but that is not just your plan. And that way you don't forget those other little areas along the way. Yeah, I feel like we're really kind of seeing that uh, last week with Texas and the cold weather that everybody had. Yeah. So, and that's probably something people put in their HVA, but maybe didn't put on their list or obviously the electrical companies have probably need to up that on their list now that they know the impact. So Andrew, you had mentioned earlier talking about the strategic national stockpile. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services strategic national stockpile? Yeah, definitely. I think if your institution has one of these stockpiles uh, inside of your system, this is probably one of the easiest ways for you to, if you're not involved already, to start to get involved. Lots of times this is deferred kind of to like a, a storeroom or an inventory manager's job because, it, you know, barely ever would it need to be dispensed. It's really just kind of maintaining the inventory and those expiration dates. But the purpose of it was to provide a national program for forward placement of antidotes to be able to respond to a nerve agent attack in the setting of if we would unfortunately need one. You know, these nerve agent antidotes aren't very cheap, you know, and, and of course they expire and they're not needed very often. So basically the government kind of took it on themselves to create these uh, Chempex, if you will. And so the strategic national stockpile was essentially created to have a 12 hour response time to these chemical attacks, because obviously time would be of the essence if Americans or anybody were exposed to these types of things. And just the cost would be prohibitive to most uh, institutions at, at an institutional level or a local level. 
So they established this in 2002, and basically it's maintained by the CDC, and the CDC has these stockpiles of medications that are located throughout the United States that are monitored kind of via this uh, archaic sense of phone system that will basically notify the CDC if it, it comes out of temperature range uh, via telephone line, or if it's open via telephone line, or if, uh, if there's a loss of power to your institution, they also get notified. So basically the CDC is monitoring this, you know, 24 seven to make sure that the integrity of the medications is always there. And it's at the institutional level to make sure that it doesn't, you know, have temperature excursions and then nobody gets access to it at an inappropriate time, et cetera, et cetera. And there's really two types of temp packs that are kind of stored out there uh, throughout the United States at strategic locations that are undisclosed for obvious reasons. But basically the two different types is that there's a hospital uh, type, which basically is more vials than pre-filled auto injectors. And then there's like an EMS one, which is more auto injectors than there is vital. So they, they can administer those in the, in the field more easily. And then they're color-coded beyond that. So basically at the institutional level, um, there's an orange one, there's a blue one, and there's a yellow one, and then there's a green one. So the specific colors go to specific hospitals, and then the other colors will go to surrounding hospitals around you. Um, to make sure that one hospital doesn't get bombarded with all the patients and treatment for all these patients should the situation arise. Yeah, some of the medications that are included in these chem packs, for those unfamiliar, would be things like atropine, pralidoxime, Valium, again, both in the auto-injector form and in the vial form. And then one of the key things with these, because we've had multiple drills with these chem packs, is that since there is a controlled substance in it, Valium, obviously, it needs to be monitored behind a locked door once you dispense it. And let me tell you what, when you start to drill these things or, you know, God forbid, if there was a real like mass casualty incident, that's like the last thing you're thinking about when you're trying to pull, you know, these hundreds of pounds of medications up from your storeroom through the elevators in the tiny doors of your emergency department, down the hallways where there's patients who are being, you know, boarded in the hallways, of course, because we live on the East Coast or wherever you live. So again, making sure that you you have someone or some type of action plan together, just going back to what we talked about before and making sure you drill this into your departments, kind of just like, you know, it, if you will, so that they don't have to actively think about it, so that those medications can make sure that they're not diverted in the situation, so someone doesn't take advantage of, you know, these mass casualty incidents. And then for those uh, medications that go to outside hospitals, those kind of, you generally get transported by your local fire department, um, your local health department, your local police department, and go, just going back to what Caitlin said, there's going to be a, a plan put together, you know, kind of from the county at that point or from the local city or state. And you want to make sure you kind of know who's going to be responsible for picking those up, whether or not you need a controlled substance transfer form. That's something we needed at one of my previous institutions before based on the state level. And again, just for those of you that have these chem packs, and if you haven't drilled an actual drill, I urge you to contact your local Department of Health. One of the best things we did at one of my previous institutions was we actually drilled the activation of the chem pack. So the Department of Health had these boxes that looked exactly like the chem pack, so we didn't have to open them up, but they were filled with bags of rocks that were, you know, accounted for the exact weight of what these boxes were supposed to be. And until you start to move this volume of medications for over a thousand patients, you truly do not understand the, the breadth of people that you need and the strength of people that you need. And you need to get security involved, honestly, because when I did it, I had like two 
pharmacists, you know, one was maybe 110 pounds soaking wet and the other was maybe 160. And it, it took us, uh, you know, I got involved, even though I wasn't supposed to be involved, I was supposed to be monitoring our response. And it took us over 45 minutes just to get these medications to where they need to be, which was not ideal in a situation of, you know, a mass casualty event when you have somewhere between 30 and 50 patients walking through your door at the time. So I urge people to, to actually drill these, make sure that they have the resources to move these medications, probably not only for these temp packs, but if your hospital has disaster carts as well. Those were quite big on my last institution as well. And I can only imagine the strength it takes to move those up and down elevators, stairs, across hallways, et cetera. Lens. <laughs> <laughs> so if pharmacists were interested in learning more, uh, what resources are available? Definitely. So obviously at a local level, if you want to get involved with the medical reserve corps, I think every area has those open to pharmacists and you can get involved with those right now. You know, in my area, basically the medical reserve corps are being used to administer vaccinations in our area. Obviously, making sure that you're familiar with your medical equipment inside of your hospital, such as PAPRs, uh, decontamination events was something that I had the opportunity to do during my residency program uh, with the incoming medical residents. That was a great opportunity for me to figure out exactly what goes into the whole decon process. Special certifications such as the advanced hazmat life support, that's something I haven't had the opportunity yet, but I know that those courses are available. Furthermore, FEMA has amazing training courses that are free. They'll actually come to your institution if you can get enough uh, interest in them. And you can also go down to their official center in Alabama for healthcare leadership and mass casualty incidents. And those courses are available as well. And of course, everybody should be advanced uh, life support, basic life support. You know, if you have the opportunity to do trauma life support, it's always good to have um, that type of, even though it's more provider-based, um, that kind of communication groundwork laid um, to make sure that you understand everything that's being discussed. Anything else to add, Caitlin? Uh, I completely agree with all that. I've, as for the FEMA training, if you haven't done them, they're a blast and there are so many. You can learn to do any area, out, even outside of pharmacy, if you want to learn how to set up uh, shelters and uh, water supply. So go in there and dig around. Um, obviously, there's some key ones, 100, 200, 700, and 800, which will pertain a lot to pharmacists and healthcare providers that are at larger or at facilities. So there's a lot of great things. I think I've done like 30 now, partly because I went ahead and got a master's in disaster response. So I think that's another great resource for those of you who are really ready to jump the gun and try to learn more. Obviously, at certain levels, uh, when, as we go through pharmacy school and residency, there's only so much time to focus on this. So there are multiple master's programs out there or doctorates if you'd like to go to that level. And then I, I think there's a lot of great resources now, um, such as podcasts like we're doing now. And many organizations and places have different things, whether it be training and education, but then there's also other ones just to kind of learn about different disasters or hear how people have responded in different areas. We're obviously listening to ones about COVID all the time through ASHP, but there are all different ones. One I got into was the big one, and it was about preparing for earthquakes. It wasn't healthcare associated, but it was definitely an area I had never 
listened to or really prepared for being on the East Coast most or in the Midwest most of my time. So something interesting to get an idea just even as a person, because if you want to respond, being able to be there and be comfortable that your family is safe and everyone else at home is safe is a big part of it, too. Yeah, definitely. And then I think, again, one last thing is to make sure that you're plugged in. Uh, I don't know if we've iterated this enough, but make sure you're plugged into your your institutional emergency preparedness coordinator uh, or disaster committee or whatever your institution calls it to make sure that you're part of the conversation. The pharmacy department needs to be part of the conversation because uh, if these disaster events uh, necessitate any type of medical treatment, whether it's in the emergency department or it's in the parking lot or it's across the street from your hospital because you need to evacuate the whole hospital. Um, it, it needs to be part of the conversation and often it's overlooked. Um, it's just an assumption that the medications are always going to be there. And without that, that clearly delineated thought process of how we're going to deliver medications inside these settings, you know, it, it, it may not be there when the time necessitates it. So making sure that you, someone has a seat at the table for your disaster committee and someone who's actively involved. You know, I find many times that this is one of those uh, committees that maybe your director or your operational manager gets put on and maybe they're not nearly as engaged as they need to be. And you may find that your hospital doesn't have, you know, disaster medications, disaster carts, or a clearly delineated uh, disaster plan put together. And it's an opportunity right for emergency medicine pharmacy involvement. So where can pharmacy personnel get involved with emergency preparedness outside of their institution? Yeah. And Andrew actually brought one of these up, just uh, the last question, um, in, which is a great one at a state and local level. Your medical reserve corps is a great opportunity for anybody to get involved that's in healthcare. It gives a lot of flexibility for your time, which I think is what most people worry about. If there's a disaster in their state, will they be able to respond and help others? But you sign up and it's a way so that your licensure is registered through the state so that they know what you are able to do. And you can do small things like being able to help at a marathon or something that's being run to help distribute medications or, you know, check people that are crossing the finish line up to responding to an event. So in the Midwest, a lot of times with tornadoes is a great example where people were deployed to other parts of the state to help out and be back up to the people that are there or help out in set up facilities that popped up for the event that was going on. Going outside of that area, going national, something like the Disaster Medical Assistant Teams or DMAT, which is through FEMA, um, you can join those. You end up joining the one locally in your state, but those are a great way to get involved and you can go not only within the country, but sometimes international as well. The one thing to keep in mind with those is the flexibility is a little less in the fact that it's almost like a military deployment where you have to kind of be ready to give a two months out of the year that you might be able to be deployed if called upon. And then when you do get deployed, it's a two-week deployment. So it's not um, like a long stint, but it's something that you might find out two days and you're leaving in two days. So definitely, if that's something that sparks your interest, talk with your leadership and your bosses to make sure that's something that can be accommodated within your job. Because when you get called up, it, they can't really say no. So you need to be able to leave quickly and make sure your family and things at home are ready to go. 
Additionally, there's a lot of other opportunities through non-government organizations that you can volunteer, not only locally, but around the world. So it's just kind of keeping an eye out. But those are some great ones that are easier to get involved with with short-term commitments. So what is one of the biggest things you learned as you've gotten involved that you wish you had known earlier? And what would you like to share with our listeners? Oh, gosh, Vicki, that's such a big question. There's so many things, but I think we've done a lot of sharing today. But I think for me, I'm always one who wants to get involved and do things. So I think the biggest thing I learned along the way is while there's always going to be something new and something different that comes up, many people have paved the path before us. So don't try to reinvent the wheel for everything. You you can always reach out to other pharmacists, other emergency responders, both within your departments and your facility, but then also outside with your public health departments in your counties and state. Somebody's got a plan that you can use at least as a starting point. And maybe you've a, adapted a little bit and you have to change the format to your local institution, but it gives you a good base and set of starting from scratch and trying to figure it all out on your own. Plus, then you get a lot of great ideas that you can take and also share your ideas back. And that also builds, as Andrew's been talking about, that relationship between all the different areas that are responding. So you get your little community that you can work with. Yeah. And uh, again, I think just to piggyback on uh, everything that we've said so far in this podcast, making sure not only that you have a plan in place, but if you have that plan in place, like you need to drill it. And uh, it's easy for a lot of institutions to to put together tabletop drills, especially in times like now where we're not allowed to gather. Uh, social distancing is obviously very important. But when we get back to normal, making sure that we're doing actually hands-on drills. Those tabletop drills are nice. They kind of make you think about things. But when the rubber hits the road, you're going to have a lot less resources than you think you have uh, because other people are going to be out there doing other things. Staff is going to eventually and potentially not show up to work uh, because they got to care for their loved ones. You know, there's going to be a lot of things that come at you and you want to make sure that you have the resources you need to actually deploy and activate your plan, which you've spent so hard working on. And you want to make sure that it's successful. And without that, uh, you know, kind of rubber meets the roads, hands on the boxes type of thing. You're not going to know what true resources you need uh, because everything can look great on paper but actually activating that plan can be a lot more difficult than you think. Well, that's all the time we have today. Caitlin and Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. For those of you who haven't in the past, I encourage you to check out the ASHB Clinical Resources on Emergency Medicine. You can find member-exclusive offerings, such as the recorded emergency pharmacy series, links to articles and guidelines for emergency medicine and other practice resources. Thanks again for tuning in for this episode and join us here every Thursday, where we talk with ASHP content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Be sure also to subscribe to the ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.